Please remain standing and open up your copy of God's Word to Isaiah 5, and we'll read verses 8 through 30 together. As we stand at attention to hear from God uh, what He has to say to us. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, Surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and an omer of seed shall yield but one ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and the nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw as sin as with cart ropes, who say, Let him be quick, let him speed at his work, that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near. Let it come, that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom will go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked. And their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away, and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows bent, their horses' hoof seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion, like young lions they roar. 
They growl and seize their prey. They carry it off, and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day, like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. This is the word of our Lord. Let's go to God in prayer one more time. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. You are sovereign over all, God. Your truth remains as true today as it has in eternity past and as it will into eternity future, God. You display, Lord, your glory in your word. And as we see you and we see ourselves in comparison, God, what is there to say? But we worship you. And I pray, Lord, as we consider those who've gone before us in the days of Isaiah, their sin and how you dealt with their sin, God, that we may believe in your word and its commandments and believe that you are as true today as you were then. Enlighten us, Lord, to your truth and your beauty. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, this sermon this morning concludes the preface of the book of Isaiah, believe it or not. Five chapters in, and we're just getting into the meat of the meal. Last Sunday, Pastor Ryan preached on the song of God's vineyard. God made a beautiful vineyard, we're told. He took special care in constructing it. Then he placed his name on this vineyard so that the whole world would see it and know the one who made it. But the vineyard never produced the expected fruit. If you're still in Isaiah, look at verse 1, 4. What more was there to do for my vineyard, says God, that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? God says that he did everything that he good for his vineyard, and he is trustworthy When he says, I've done everything I could for it, we must believe he truly did everything he could for it. But yet it produced wild grapes. Our passage today, as I understand it, is a clarification of what these wild grapes are. And when we understand the states of the fruit, we know why God has removed it from his garden and purified his land. So this morning, I believe we'll we'll zoom into verse 4 that we just read to understand what this useless fruit looks like. And this begs us today as the reader to ask the question, what makes one fruit sour and inedible? And what makes another fruit sweet and good for God's harvest? As we read, there are six woes, and we'll consider each one briefly this morning. And I believe that these woes are what characterize wicked fruit. I call them the six woes for wicked fruit. 
And as we jump into our passage, let's consider first, what is a woe? Well, biblically speaking, it's generalized in two ways. One, there could be a woe of grief, of sorrow. But there's also woes of anger and judgment. All of the woes that we read this morning are exclamations of condemnation. And a woe does two things. First, it puts a spotlight on sin. It explains why there's coming judgment. And the second thing it does is it follows with what that judgment that follows will look like. So we'll jump into the first of the six woes. And verse 8, I call this the woe of covetousness. The first woe is the woe of covetousness. Verse 8 says, Woe to those who join house to house and add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, Surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but one ephah. The Israelites are described as adding house to house and field to field. They're buying up their neighbor's real estate. Basically, what they're doing is building up an empire. And where buying homes and fields is not intrinsically wrong, in fact, the Bible speaks highly of things like this, in this instance, there's a sense of greed and discontentment that is fueling their acquisitions. Here, the sin highlighted is the sin of covetousness, a strong desire for things that other people have. It's the breaking of the Tenth Commandment. The land was given to Israel, to the descendants of Abraham. Each tribe was given a plot of land to dwell on, for their families to grow on. They were to gather in community where God was the center of their worship. And they were to be, from this land, a light to the surrounding nations. But these coveters did not see the land in that light. They saw the land as an opportunity instead to build up their own nation inside the kingdom of God. They did not think about God in their dealings. They didn't acknowledge him as the God of their land. They made their own decisions which hurt themselves and hurt their neighbors. And then God tells Isaiah, I will strip them of their mansions and make their land unprofitable. I will make this land that they worshipped a ghost town. I imagine here ruins of a castle. Have you seen that before? Where a mighty fortress once stood, there's now only heaps of rocks where walls stood, where this shell of a structure was once bustling with life. It is now only home to invasive vines and rodents. Because these people trusted the land to make them wealthy and safe, instead of their God, God commands the land to betray its owners, showing his sovereignty over his creation. Where 10 acres should produce 4,000 gallons of wine, it will produce less than 8 gallons. Where a homer of seed shall produce 
tenfold an ephah. That's, imagine spending $100 on seeds, working the land, putting all that effort in, and only profiting $1 from your investment in your work. This is the woe of covetousness. Our second woe is the woe of hedonism. Read with me in verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the works of his hands. Our second woe, church, is a woe of hedonism. A hedonist is a person who values materialism and pleasure over anything else. And I say material pleasure because there is a sense of reality of seeking spiritual pleasure. But they're seeking material pleasure as more valuable than anything else that they could pursue. These people are substance abusers. They think about alcohol day and night when they rise and when they go to sleep. It consumes them. There is a picture of a party here with instruments that accompany their wine drinking. In the midst of pursuing their own pleasure, it seems like they forget God. But forgetting God wasn't a mistake on their parts. Forgetting God was an intentional work. They must forget God if their own pleasure is at the center of their time, their gifts, and their uh, treasures. For a hedonist, God is not the chief end of man. God is not the highest goal of man's pursuits. For a hedonist, they are the chief ends of themselves. And instead of waking up to fill themselves with God and his word and prayer and worship, they're thinking of the bottle. They're thinking of their addiction. They're thinking of that pleasure-filling distraction. And they're also staying up late, not getting ready or thinking about the next day's work and laboring unto God. They're obsessed with that sin that satisfies their flesh. And pleasure, in whatever form it takes for someone, becomes the God that they worship instead of the true God. Now, within this text, we have six woes and four therefores. And these therefores are the, the appropriate judgments concerning the sins of the people. Here we have two therefores of judgment. The first, therefore, is a judgment of exile. Let's read verse 13. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. In other words, God is saying, the party is over. God's people are going into exile for what, church? Lack of knowledge. Let's rest on that phrase for a moment. What is this lack of knowledge, church? Does it mean that they truly didn't know God? The sad answer is that they did know God. They lived in Israel. God was at the center of their whole lifestyle and community. They knew of him, but had no regard of him. 
This phrase doesn't just allude to dumb ignorance. Instead, and this is where Hebrew scholarship really comes in helpful, lack of knowledge here is describing a lack of preparation for what they did know. A lack of preparation for what they did know. For example, think of a person living in the path of an oncoming hurricane, but they refuse to leave despite the oncoming storm. They rather ignore it because they don't consider the oncoming consequences. They're too consumed with whatever to be bothered. We would say of that person, they lack knowledge. And God responds to these people, because you have done what you could to ignore me, I will make myself unignorable. In judgment two, the judgment of humiliation, verses 14 through 17. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled and each one is brought low. And the eyes of the holy are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. And then the lamb shall gaze in their pasture, and nomad shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Judgment of humiliation begins with this idea of sheol. Sheol, that word means both the grave and the afterlife, which is fitting here, fitting for those who are going into exile because they're taken from this land that they find their value in, this land that they worship, and they're put under it in the grave. And those who live this hedonistic lifestyle while they have time under the sun, and now they go to the afterlife. They will be humbled by God, we're told. The ultimate humbling is the stripping away of our idols, isn't it? It's those idols being stripped away and we stand naked in our sin before our judge, who is holy. Here is where God is exalted in justice. He will not let sin go unpunished because he is a just God. It would be unjust for him not to punish sin. For our holy God, and that means in God's holiness, he's set apart from all of his creation. In other words, God, compared to everything, is uniquely unique. He will act rightly in his judgment, perfectly in his judgment. And this humiliation of sinners will serve to highlight God's supreme purity and his supreme sovereignty. The world will know that there is one God to be worshipped on that day of judgment. And on that day, he will be the only object of all creation's worship. Now you could, like myself, think we could just stop here and say, okay, we get it. Woe to the rotten fruits. But we're not even halfway there. Let's continue with the third woe, which I call the woe of unbelief. Verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, and this is shocking, let him be quick, let him speed his work, that we may see it, let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come, that we may know it. The imagery Isaiah uses here is just strange. 
It's of people who are like farm animals tethered to carts. Instead, the ropes are sin and iniquity. I'm sorry, the ropes are falsehood and iniquity, and the carts themselves are the sin that they choose to be tethered to. These people who choose to live without fear of God are people who reject freedom for the opportunity for slavery. They reject freedom for the opportunity to be a slave. And they mock God with their words. I even wonder here in this portion that's in quotation, are these some things that Isaiah even heard personally from Israel? Let me paraphrase what Israel's saying here. They're saying, let God show himself. If he is going to judge us, let it happen quickly so we can see for ourselves. Let the counsel of God be so loud that we can know it for ourselves. And they mock God in unbelief. They mock God willfully, actively refusing to believe what they already know. Because they don't believe in their heart that God will judge them. Notice that they're actually acknowledging that there is a God here. But they're even going beyond the fact that there could be a God or that there is a God. And they name him. They name him the Holy One of Israel. That is their God. That's their God that they're mocking by name. Of all of the woes that remind me of our day, and every one of them does remind me of our day, this one hits most at home with me, church. I rarely meet someone who totally rejects the existence of God. It's very rare to meet someone who just outright 100% says there is no higher power. But when I ask someone in, during street evangelism, if you would like a Bible, I cannot tell you how often they laugh in my face. It happens all the time. Every time I go out, it happens. I get laughed at for trying to share the gospel. The problem is that on the day of reckoning, they'll have no excuse because God has totally revealed himself to us. He has made himself known in his word. He has made himself known in the church. And yet people still choose to suppress the truth and lies. And that is what we see during the day of Isaiah. Our next woe is the woe of perversion. Read verse 20 with me. Woe to those who call good, uh, evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Perversion is to turn aside or away from what is good, true, or morally right. Without God's guidance as the world's moral standard, people must make their own standard. They're forced to. And because of the corruption of sin that affects all of us and changes the way that we think about God's world, things that are clearly and objectively true we can believe to be false. And that's a radical thing to say. But yet we see it. They say something that is sweet is bitter and something that is bitter is sweet. You can say it. You can even do all you can to believe it. 
But something that's sweet is sweet. And something that is bitter is bitter. Yet, without the absolute moral authority of the God as sovereign over all this, we can truly deceive ourselves to believe lies and truly believe them. But are we really to believe that people can get to the point where they not only secretly believe that good is evil and evil is good, but to practice this openly? Can a person or a nation as a whole come to agree that God's morals are evil and they can determine what is good and evil without him? Are we to believe this? How can a culture get to a point where you make wickedness desirable and people get rich off of pride and selfishness and drunkenness and they're worshipped by the masses? How can a culture scream at someone, you are evil for believing babies have the right to live? How can a culture condemn someone as evil for standing on prayer and therapy over body mutilation and mental sickness? I think I've made my point. Point five, the woe of foolishness. The woe of foolishness. Verse 21, read with me. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. This is saying, woe to those who measure wisdom against a low standard. To be wise according to your own standard is the pinnacle of foolishness. God says do the opposite. Proverbs 7, 3. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn from evil. Fear God. Don't mock him with the way you live according to your own standard, but honor him and worship him. Have no other gods before him. And turn from evil. What is evil? Fear God and you will know what is good and what is evil. And last is the woe of corruption. Our sixth woe is the woe of corruption. Let's read this together in verse 22. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. The woe of corruption. These verses speak of corrupt leaders who I believe maybe we're all familiar with. Heroes are called to protect the weak. That's what a hero does, right, by definition? Yet here, these people are consumed with strong drink over the needs of their people. Valiant men who were at one time called valiant because of their courage and their determination are now given this title for their levels of selfishness. Instead of producing justice, they are greedy with their power. They have the ability to help the vulnerable, but they deprive the innocent of what is right for their own selfish gain. And with this church, we have the picture of the wild grapes. People who have rejected the owner of the vineyard. So the owner does what he must with his overgrown rotten fruit. Which brings us to our final pronouncement of judgment. The judgments of destruction and judgment by foreign nations. Let's read first the judgment of destruction. In verse 24, we read, 
Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their roots will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and they have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. What is the farmer to do with rotten plants but to clear his field completely? In verse 24, we read the source of their rottenness, church. It's this. It's in rejecting the law of the Lord. It's not an ignorance of the law of the Lord, but it's knowing it and then rejecting it. It's in despising the word of the Holy One of Israel. This specific judgment we read, church, is not to the foreign nations who worship their own idols in darkness. This is to God's very own people. The true God has revealed himself clearly. He has delivered them from slavery. He has given them a good law, and they hated it. That's what we read. They hated it, and they hated him. So they will be removed from the vineyard, he says. And lastly is the judgment of foreign nations in verses 25 through 30. I won't reread it, but I'll describe it for you. God whistles. And like some dog, a great nation that surrounds Israel will respond quickly. We read they respond speedily. And this is a force to be reckoned with, everyone. It's a great army that's described as unbeatable. They don't need sleep. Their armor is perfect. Their weapons are perfect. Their horses don't need new shoes. Their chariots have great wheels. They are like a lion in its prime who seizes its prey. When it roars, everyone shakes in fear. And the sky grows dark, and there seems to be no hope the judgment of foreign nations. And I believe that God is revealing the judgment of Assyria here on Israel, potentially the future judgment of Babylon on Judah. But what we must be impressed with here with this judgment church is not the army. It's not this great force that's up against God's people who respond speedily to a whistle. What we must be impressed with, church, here is God himself, that the nations shake that the mountains crumble, that nations respond to a figurative whistle. All of these are just simple tools in the hand of God that bring about his just judgment. This is the God that Israel rejected in the way that they chose to live their lives. Do we also reject God in the way we choose to live our lives? That's what I've been thinking about all week. church, the people of God during the days of Isaiah, they didn't just forget about God. They chose to be considered among God's people, claiming the name of God's chosen people, Israel, but they rejected the God of Israel. They considered him weak. They considered his law optional, and they thought following God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength was ridiculous. 
So they kept the name Israel. They lived close to God's temple, but they may as well have lived in any pagan nation around them. Another way I would say would be they claimed Christ, but they lived like the world. Because their hearts, because in their heart of hearts, they rejected God and his word. The way a person values God's word in their practical living reveals what kind of fruit they are in his vineyard. The rotten fruit has rejected the law of God and the Lord of hosts. While the good fruit says, O Lord, I love your law, I meditate on it day and night. I encourage you to read Psalm 119, verses 97 through 105, if you want a description of what a fruitful worshiper of God looks like. What I have been doing this morning in our message, and maybe you've picked up on it already, is I've been framing these woes around the good good commandments of God. Because when we have a low view of God's law, we are to be woed. Turn to Exodus 19, please. To see more fully what Israel has rejected, let's read it for ourselves. In Exodus 19, leading up to the Ten Commandments, God reminds Israel what he has done for them. And in his language, we're going to read, there is a great tone of love for his people and desire for his people. Hear what God asks Moses to tell Israel in verses 4 through 6. Exodus 19, 4 through 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all of the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The whole earth is God's. The mountains, Egypt, Assyria are all his. But Israel, Israel was most precious to him among all of the earth because he calls them his precious possession. He is the one who brought them to himself. He is the one who freed them from slavery. He is the one who has given them his law. And he does, if you look over at chapter 20, we see the giving of what we call today the Ten Commandments. The gift of the law, church, is more than just some rules to live by. It is the revelation of the character of God. The laws of God are not just rules to live by. It is a revealing of God's majesty to us. Israel no longer had to live according to what was right in their own eyes. God flipped on the light switch, and the things dimly seen by the light of nature were now made undoubtedly clear to them. And because God is holy, uniquely unique, he cannot do anything but demand holiness from his creation, namely his people. Why would a holy God demand holiness? Because denying them of that standard would be denying them the absolute best for themselves. And it would also be him denying himself in the process. And Israel grew over time to despise the law of their God. 
how do you think about God's law? Do you think of it as this beautiful gift of God's character on display for you? Do you see it as a light, a guide on how you can love your God and your neighbor and even yourself properly? Or do you secretly live as though you despise the law of God? Are you actively choosing unbelief by your choices? Do you choose these temporary pleasures instead of his righteousness? And I ask these things of you, church, so that you do not perish for lack of knowledge. Often, it's not overly obvious that God isn't the object of our worship. Because we claim Christ and we become members of a biblical church, we choose to be counted among those of God's people. We listen, listen to Christian music and read the best reformed books, yet our hearts can still be far from him. His glory can be as far from us as the chief end as it should be. And in the midst of Isaiah's vision and pronouncements of woe, there is a word of hope for Israel. And that is still true for us today, church. In chapter 1, verse 27, we must not miss this of Isaiah. Chapter 1, 27. It says this, Zion shall be redeemed by justice. And those in her who repent by righteousness. Please do not miss the point. We have the same problems of misplaced worship today. But will we heed Isaiah's warnings and repent? For God will not share his worship with anything, especially his creation, for he is holy and far above his creation. Thomas Watson says, knowledge without repentance is a lamp that lights men's path to hell. Knowledge doesn't get you to heaven. Knowledge without repentance is a lamp to light men to hell. So be honest with yourself, church. What is it that you worship? Because God already knows. Be honest with yourself. Is it materialism? Are you obsessed with a better home and more luxury? than your love and desire for worshiping God? Do you deny the wisdom of God as nonsense when it comes to real-life struggles, church, where you take matters into your own hands because you don't believe God will provide? When it comes to business or school or parenting or dating or marriage, how are you living and who is your God? It's subtle, these sins. And where there is no repentance, there is flame. There is removal. There is separation from the Holy One of Israel. Listen, church, everyone here. If you are not constantly repenting of sin, you are in danger. If you are not daily growing and repenting of sin, you are in danger. 
don't think that this message isn't for you. Because there is only one who did not need to repent of sin. And that was our Savior. He took our sin. He took the full judgment that we deserved. He felt the lion's wrath. He experienced Sheol opening its mouth. In his day of judgment, the sky did grow dark and the land did shake. But you don't have to experience this judgment. As this terrifying judgment has already been experienced for you through Christ. So repent and believe. Put down the bottle and worship. Turn off the screen of sin and worship. Confess that bitterness and that resentment towards those around you and worship. Because repentance, church, as we learn, is the only way. Humility is the way, and Jesus is the only way. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word, Lord, that doesn't only provide truth and knowledge, but it provides truth and power as you use it and work through it in all of our hearts. I pray for myself, I pray for our church, Lord, that we take seriously your law each and every day, that we don't drift, Lord, unknowingly into woe, but that we experience the full gift and joy of grace and relationship with Jesus Christ, Lord. You have made the way. In Christ's name we pray, amen.